Let's make today the day you get one step closer to becoming the parent you've always wanted to be and the parent your children deserve. Welcome to Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids. I am your host, Erin Taylor, and I have wanted to help parents and children literally since I was 11 years old. I created this podcast to help you make a stronger, healthier, deeper connection to your child, to understand the inevitable challenges a little better, and learn some new ways to navigate them when they occur. Thank you for spending some time with me. Now let's get this show started. Hello and welcome back to the show. Today is episode 620 and I have the pleasure of chatting with my good friend, Dr. Carol Scott. Dr. Scott has a dream to change for the better the way we treat each other in America. Oh, I love it. Through what she calls the wisdom of childhood, you can finally understand what makes people tick. Seven self-aware success strategies, your SAS. Manifest that wisdom in your life today. Lesson number one, however you define your success, it begins with you treating yourself and everyone else as the unique gifts we are in the world. Isn't that beautiful? The SAS model integrates more than a century of theory and research on early learning and brain development, lessons from Carol's lifetime career with children and families, and tools from her own journey of recovery after a childhood filled with trauma. A truly committed University of Kansas Jayhawk, she earned her dual BAs in anthropology and human development, an MA in early education, and a PhD in developmental psychology, all on the hill in Lawrence. Welcome, Carol. It's so great to have you here. Erin, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So, before we dive in, you are quite a loyal alumni, are you not? <laughs> I am. You know, I've never been a I've never been a sports fan, so I'm like not the KU football fan or anything. Although KU basketball and some other sports interest me because I had a niece who was a road crew, a niece oh. who road crew at KU. She's in a PhD program now. So yeah, we've been a family supporter of Jayhawks and all things Jayhawk for many decades in my family. I love that. That's very awesome. So let's dive into what we're here to talk about today. I know we're going to spend some time talking about anxiety in kids. Do you think we should start dive right in there or should we, we first talk about your SAS? You know, let's talk a little bit about the SAS first, but the, what underlies it is really what many people professionally refer to as early childhood mental health or infant mental health. Mm-hmm. So if we want to talk about a, a mental health issue, which anxiety certainly is, we can talk about it in the context of the SAS and how we um, are supposed to gain enough skills to not be anxious when we're older, but that it all happens when we're so young from birth to seven and particularly from birth to three. So mm-hmm. let's start there. 
Let's start there. So, All right. so I often say that we come into the world, each of us, we're born and the newborns uh, come in with not much resource. We can't, we are completely dependent mm-hmm. on the care of adults of our species. You know, a lot of other species on the planet, the newborns get up, get on their feet and, you know, tuck into a first meal and they're running on the prairie. And so we're not that. We are utterly dependent for months on our caregivers, years, really. And so um, right away, what's happening is we're creating a dynamic for relationship. And infants come into this world with a bowl full, a head full, if you will, a skull bowl full of neurons that aren't connected to each other yet. Mm -hmm. And so the experience of the first three years of a child's life puts those neurons together, those little isolated, just think of them like a big bowl of spaghetti noodles. They have to connect to each other to create a brain structure that lets us think, talk, walk, go to school, everything we do after that. Um, We don't come into the, the world with that brain already built. We build it. We, the adults, build it. Mm -hmm our interactions with the child and so from those earliest moments every single minute of a child's experience every single let me see if i get the numbers right every single second of a child's experience there are one million new neural connections being formed in that big skull full of loose neurons a hundred billion neurons are starting to connect to each other and what what creates the connection is the experience of the child. And that experience can be anything from a wet diaper chafing their skin to a breeze on their face to eye contact with the caregiver to pain to everything that happens, okay? Every single thing that happens, second by second, the brain gets wired up. Mm. Do we wonder how children become anxious? (laughs) We wire their brains to be anxious because of the experiences they have, oftentimes not quite that young. So what's important for us as adult caregivers, whether we're parents or grandparents or aunties and uncles and teachers, I mean, you know, early childhood programs serve children as young as six weeks of age for 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. Mm -hmm. All of us who care for little children just need to know a little bit more about what's going on in that brain to avoid creating circumstances that uh, wire us up for mental health problems later. So when we talk about infant mental health or early childhood mental health, what we're talking about is the dynamic of interaction between the, the newborn, the infant, the toddler, and the young preschooler with the world in which they live. And each one of us has to navigate this sort of labyrinth of experience and try to come out on the other side of that a whole productive person who doesn't, isn't limited by things like anxiety. And what I've done is define that seven year journey. So I keep saying three and seven. So let me just clarify in the first three years of our life, 85% of the brain gets wired up 85% in that process of every second, a million new connections, 85% done by three before we can really hardly articulate and express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Then a little bit more development, mostly around uh, cognitive function, um, kind of what would you think of as academic thinking, whereas everything that came before was interpersonal, emotional, social. <clears throat> by five, 95% of the brain is wired. And then we get two years to sort of practice our personality before we're sort of pretty cooked as a person and we sort of live like that. As, a, as we come out at seven-ish, we try to negotiate the world and 
create strategies for success in our lives based with the seven tools that I call the SAS. And whatever version of them we come out of early childhood carrying is the set of tools that we have. So they are, how well can you trust other people? That's the infant strategy. How well can you trust other people to meet your needs, to be there for you when you need help? How independent are you? How, how are your boundaries that contain who you are? Not the kind of boundaries where you say, no, you can't do that. But the kind of boundaries that say, this is me over here. You're you over there. You're contained as a being who is unique and has feelings and things that you want and you think. And I do too. And mine are different from yours. And that's all okay. How independent are you really, instead of getting sort of enmeshed with other people's feelings and codependent and trying to prevent people from having feelings and manipulating people? Then that's the toddler strategy for success. How independent are you? The three-year-old strategy is to be a big dreamer, to be the kind of person who will say, I want to change for the better the way we treat people in America, the way we treat each other in America. Um, the three-year-old strategy is to be filled with faith, positivity, and belief in the impossible. And so we need some of that as an adult to be successful. We need to be able to negotiate like a four-year-old. The four-year-old success strategy is to get what they want by negotiating for it, by figuring out what the world's rules are and working inside them. They're, they're really great. They want rules. They like structure, four-year-olds. They want everything understandable and logical and mm-hmm. fair, Mm -hmm. Um, And they want to be able, because they want to be able to, it's, it's, it wants to seem less chaotic to them and they want order. And so they're looking for the order and trying to figure out how to make this work in a way that's consistent for me. And then at five, they start becoming little strategic planners. They're, we're, our strategy at five is to be visionary, to have ideas and to implement them, to plan things, to say, I'm going to make this and then do it step by step. And then at six and seven, our strategies are to learn how to compromise in big groups and get along in the bigger sandboxes of our lives. And then to accept that sometimes bad things happen, even if you follow all the rules and you're a good person and um, everything is the way it should be for you. You can, you know, you can be nice to someone and they can be mean to you. You can be a good person and have a loving family and members of your family can die. Mm -hmm. So, To accept that and have it not be devastating and have it not end your ability to engage with life, that's the success strategy, if you can imagine, of a seven-year-old. And they're coping with a pretty big world by the time they get to seven. So if we come to that age, seven, seven and a half, and we can trust people, we know who we are, we have faith in all of our dreams, and we believe in the ability to pull off magic, we can negotiate to get what we want on a day-to-day basis, we know how to make a plan to get to an end point. We know how to set a goal and get there and we can compromise with other people to make things work and we can accept it when things go wrong. Boom. You're not anxious. If you have that, Mm. you're really, unless you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, if you have something like schizophrenia or something like that, you don't have a mental health problem that's caused by your social and emotional development. And that's what I think all of us need to know is that so much of our mental health concerns the anxiety that people live with on a day-to-day basis as adults gets its start right there in those first seven years. And that's not a like life sentence either. I offer what I call development do-overs because I believe that it's never too late to change that. I love that idea. And I love that, uh, that name development do-overs because as I'm listening to you, 
<clears throat> I'm, I find, I find myself, you know, different people are popping into my head, different adults that I know. And it makes me wonder, hmm, I wonder what happened when they were three. I wonder what happened when they were five. And then I think about my own kids and I think, well, were they doing that? Were we off providing that when they were this age and that age and the other age? And so I'm sure that my listeners will also be having a similar um, experience when they're hearing you explain these fascinating concepts. So I was also imagining listeners thinking, I don't think I did step number two. Oh, I think I bombed step number four. Uh Oh, what are we going to do now? So I'd love to just launch right into those development do-overs. Yes. And don't, don't worry too much. Don't freak out. Um, Everybody who hears this, hears it at that, that sort of multi-level. This is about me. This is about my children. This is about my parents. This is about my friends, my spouse. Yeah. Everybody starts to hear it immediately like that. And people who are parents immediately go to, Oh man, look at all (gasps) the up. Did I ruin my kid or am I ruining my kid? Probably not. So the great news about that, I mean, think about a million neural connections a second. How many opportunities do you have to get it right? Second by second by second. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can get it wrong a few times. You can get it wrong probably a lot, actually. And if you get it right most of the time, and if you don't do anything too heinous, kids come through a lot. Kids are incredibly resilient and the brain is very resilient as well. And that's why the development do-overs work because the wiring can be rewired. Mm-hmm. And we know this not only from developmental experience, but from things like traumatic brain injury and stroke research, you can teach different parts of the brain to do things that they haven't done before mm-hmm. uh, and change patterns in your behavior. And so that connection is great to look at the people, look at the adults I know, look at me, look at my behavior, look at my spouse. Oh my gosh, look at my best friend. Look at this person I work with. And what I start to see when I do that is this is how we know we need the do over Mm -hmm. because you can look at an adult's life and say, Oh, hmm, Mm -hmm. not really trusting other people. Don't can't really lean on others. Here's a boss who cannot uh, delegate who micromanages. That's a boss who did not get the success strategy of trust mm-hmm. as a six-month-old child. Well, great. <laughs> That's good news to find that out, isn't it? Because that person can learn to trust the world differently and they can look at the pattern of trust they have in their lives and intentionally change it as a behavior pattern and as a neural pattern. So do they change it as a neural pattern by understanding it, recognizing it, and then changing it as a behavior pattern? Does that have the backwards, you know, the reverse effect? That can work for a lot. And for some people, and I will say this for myself as a specific example, the trauma effects can be so deep that there are neural um, interferences that need to be corrected at the central nervous system level. So one of the things that I do for myself as coaching is I'm bringing um, vagus nerve healing coaching into my work so that I can get down into some of the roots of the of the wiring that is goes so deeply because the, the vagus nerve controls so many um, uh, automatic functions, automatic nervous system functions mm-hmm. like digestion and heartbeat and things like that. So it has a lot of health effects <clears throat> in the body. So uh, for a lot of people, the repatterning may be enough. The repatterning of behavior may be enough to rewire the brain enough. Mm-hmm. 
And for other people, what they will find is that over time, they're seeing this goes deeper than I thought. I need something more. And they'll know what to add because there are so many modalities to support healing from trauma now. It's become such a, a greater consciousness in our society than we've had for a long time about the effects of how we treat each other really matter. Yeah, it has become so much more widely talked about, hasn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. It has, and it's reflected in so many different ways. I, I love, there's a meme that comes up all the time in my Facebook feed um, uh, that says something like, remember to go outside and get sunshine and drink lots of water. You're basically a house plant with complex emotions. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I do too. You know, just that, you know, remembering that we, we're like organic and we have emotions and we have to care for all of that is something to keep on top of. And we don't, I'm very good at taking care of everybody else but me. Mm. But sometimes the work does have to, to go deeper. But I have found that I, I've got huge benefit for many years for, from working from this framework for myself. Therapy first for me, seven adverse childhood experiences out of the list of 10 that are identified in the research is like, really don't do this to kids. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, um, divorce in the family or, or loss of a parent to death a family member who's in prison, a family member with mental health issues, alcoholism or drug use. You know, it's like this pretty easy to identify. It's not hard to make the list of 10. Mm -hmm. And so when I have seven out of those, that's like a remarkably high number. That is four, very high. Four is very high. 52% mm -hmm. of the population has one. Why are we all so anxious? 52% of us have experienced one of those 10 adverse childhood experiences and it's, they impact our nervous systems mm -hmm. and we need to, to deal with that. And we will be anxious if we don't, I think is the important thing to know. So kids get anxious when I think fundamentally that first triangle of trust, independence, and faith gets broken too many times when they're little. And one of our best tools as adults is to just be more aware that this is a unique, independent human being who is competent from birth. And we could just back off a little bit and watch this being evolve in their own competence mm -hmm. and only help them when they really ask for it. Mm-hmm. We step in an awful lot and, and lift kids when they could do it. Right. We help. Our help is sometimes too helpful. <laughs> it is. It is. I had the opportunity to do a keynote address for an infant toddler conference recently. So it was teachers from Head Start's early childhood programs that served infants and toddlers was my audience. And I showed them a three minute video clip. Um, about, I would say she was probably, I bet she was about four months old, maybe infant girl lying on her back on a blanket. And there were just a bunch of toys around her on the blanket and the video camera was being held or it's probably on a tripod. So the perspective was the caregivers and she's just the camera and her are just watching the kiddo. And she just rolls around, she runs into things and she picks things up with her hands and she puts them in her mouth and she does what that age baby does. And then she gets wanting to grab a hold of this one ball and she can't quite get a hold of it. And I watched her, it takes her 14 seconds, I think, 15 seconds to actually, she, she like a little monkey, she gets it between her hand and her foot and curls it up to yes. her tummy and then yep. walks it up to her chin. It's hilarious to watch. Awesome. 
takes her a pretty long time to do it from the impatient adult's perspective. And I bet 90% of the people watching that kid in America would reach out and hand her the ball, Mm. move it closer, help her in some way. And it wasn't the right answer. She never once looked at the caregiver, never once broke her focus. Asked for help. That's the ask for help. And she never did it. Interesting. Only three times in the whole three minutes did she even look at the caregiver. And it was just kind of a, it was a co-regulation look. Are you here with me? Yar? Okay, I'm good. Yeah, just keep playing. That sounds like a beautiful video. And those kinds of learning experiences about how to let children be who they are, instead of so anxiously ourselves, trying to make them into the mirror of us that makes us feel okay. If we could just let them be them, and get out of their way and observe until they ask us for help and then be there mm-hmm. in a conscious way to support what they're doing, we would change the world. Mm-hmm. hundred parents raising kids like that would change the world. Because mm-hmm. a hundred kids would raise a thousand. <laughs> right. Right. It makes me think about when my oldest son was young, when he's in college now, but I used to um, step in to help him when he was, let's say, making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Because, of course, as a young kid, he's getting the jelly and the peanut butter everywhere, the crumbs all over the place. The outside of the peanut butter jar, the jelly jar is going to be covered with sticky stuff. And I personally cannot stand sticky stuff. So I remember often helping him make his peanut butter and jelly when he was perfectly capable of doing a fine, messy job himself. And so that's one of the things I often think back on from when he was young. Gee, I wish I would have let him do that peanut butter and jelly better more often, just kind of take it a deep breath, bit my tongue, allow the mess and the crumbs and the sticky jar. I can clean all that up later. Just let him do it. Or you can help him learn how to clean it up. It's another opportunity, right? Right. See, there's so many different ways. Oh, look, you made a mess. Now you got to clean. Exactly. That's what we have to do, right? We make a mess, we clean it up. Right. It's, It's one of the challenges, I one of the biggest, well, maybe... I would almost put this at number one, challenging. The challenges to being a parent, a grandparent, a caregiver of, a, of an infant or a ch- young child is that you, we have to slow everything oh, yes. down. Because really, the best mental health production, the best support for development overall is to simply engage your child in the life you already live and do it together make the peanut butter sandwich together clean the jar up together figure out pick the clothes choose where to sit all of life happens as an interaction and an awareness of this is all happening we're all here doing this but that means it has to go like at a quarter speed at least of what we usually do it at Mm. so so true patience don't have the patience and don't even have the concept that this is a helpful, beneficial thing. And so we don't think we have the time and we fill our time with stuff. We fill the kids time with stuff so that we're busy all the time. And there's no way to slow down and do everything at the kid's pace. I heard a wonderful mommy blogger say this about 
learning a little more patience with her toddler. She noticed when she was like walking up the stairs behind him with a basket of laundry and he was going at his toddler pace that she was hurrying him. Come on, hurry up. I need to get up the stairs. You're in my way. And that when she decided to let him go at his own pace, she started counting how many seconds it delayed her. And so when she found herself on the stairs behind him, she would simply start silently in her mind going one, Mississippi two, Mississippi three, Mississippi four. And her uh, little practice over time showed her that most of the time it didn't delay her more than five seconds. Wow. And in all of the times that she did it over the span of a couple of weeks, it never delayed her more than 15 seconds. That's a powerful illustration of how rushed we adults are. Yes, it really is. And our attention span has grown really short. I get uh, irritable watching a video that lasts longer than 30 seconds. I'm like, how much longer is this going to (laughs) be? Right. Well, I hate to say my kids don't even like that I do this. And I think it's kind of amazing that they're um, digital natives and they don't like it. But I have developed a very bad but very enticing habit, very addictive habit of watching videos on fast for fast speed one and a half or two sometimes i can watch a video at two times the speed and yeah. someone and will walk into the room and they're like oh my gosh turn that off what are you doing how do you even hear that how can you how can you do that <laughs> but i just I feel like i need to speed up i have other things to do <laughs> yep. i completely am resonating with that <laughs> you are you are my sister yeah <laughs> absolutely true it's, yes and it it's a, uh, it, you know, we, we hear people talk about this thing called the grind culture, but it's also just because of the speed of information transmission, right? It literally is about the speed of the transmission of data. Mm-hmm. And that doubles like the, the, the um, capacity of a processor and a computer uh, like doubles every 12 or 18 months or something like that. So our capacity for transmitting more and more information faster and faster is a part of this. And we're just kind of, falling right into it and saying, okay, I guess we better all hurry a little more. But But our ability to process. Yeah, we can't. Is not keeping up with the ability to transmit the information. That's going much faster than we are. Yeah. And little kids can't keep up at all because they're at a whole other pace. A whole other pace. New to all of this. And they, you know, we get so much encouragement in the spiritual age of Aquarius messaging to slow down and be in the now well, mm-hmm. kids are there. They live there every second of their lives. Our challenge is to simply join them there slow and, down, and be able to stay there for more than five seconds and just be patient. And I'd like to, you know, while we're talking about this and about anxiety in general, I want to just mention the term co-regulation. Mm. This is something that is starting to be more understood in Um, the kind of general culture that adults help children become people who are self-regulating. If they themselves are self-regulating and they can help co-regulate, co-regulation with the child is what helps build the child's capacity like a muscle. And so that little glance from that that month, four-month-old infant on the blanket with the balls, that glance up at the camera holder, are you there? You're there with me. I see you there with me. And whatever that caregiver did, smile, nod, just have eye contact, that was co-regulation. That mm-hmm. was a statement of I'm here with you. 
Mm-hmm. And it, the more we can help kids see that they're not alone and that what they're doing is okay with us. They can be independent of us and do whatever they do. And we're fine with that. They don't have to do what we want them to do. They don't have to do it our way. They can just explore and be safe. Mm-hmm. And we're there. Mm-hmm. Brilliant anti-anxiety measure. Really? And, and, and for us. <laughs> simple. Hard, right? but simple, right? For the parents. Exactly. Or the caregivers. And one of the benefits for us beyond the benefit to the child is that when we slow down and regulate ourselves for the sake of the child, we're less anxious. Mm-hmm. So can I tell you a little story about this happening to me just recently? Please. I am, uh, I, you can see I'm sitting inside of an RV. So I'll just say I'm sitting inside of an RV because I'm a full-time RV nomad. I live in an RV. This is my home. Very I awesome. My everything. Um, and I'm in the Bay area. And while I've been here, one of the people, uh, family, extended family I've been visiting is my godson and his two preschool children. He has a five-year-old son and a daughter who's about to turn three at the end of October. And I went over for dinner on Saturday night. It was going to be our last time together before I leave and head down to San Diego. And uh, I hadn't been there 45 minutes. I think it was about 35, 40 minutes in. Um, The five-year-old boy tripped on the stairs, coming up the stairs, and he had things in his hands. And Mm. so he couldn't stop himself from falling. And he hit his lower lip indentation space Ouch. right on the edge of one of the steps mm. boom full full force and he wound up going to the er with the parents and i was with the three-year-old the almost three-year-old girl and when it happened she just happened to be standing right next to me already showing me something and when he fell and started screaming and there was blood and there were you know the energies of the parents came up Whoop. my Naturally. energy Certainly, I felt my adrenaline rise. Sure. He crawled up into my lap. And so while the chaos of first response was happening around us, I just made like a little bubble around us. I put my arms around her and I started talking very quietly mm-hmm. about what was happening. Mm-hmm. Oh, Nene fell and he hurt himself really badly. There's lots of blood and I know that's so scary. But you know, he's going to be okay. Things on your face bleed a lot, so they look worse than they are. And I'm just talking. And she's just sitting absolutely still on my lap, Mm. curled into my chest, just breathing. And I'm just controlling my breathing. So I'm regulating myself with breath, Mm -hmm. with bringing my energy down by soft talking and by grounding in reality. This is happening around us. Mom and dad rushing sink, blood, paper towels, go upstairs to the bathroom, call, you know, decision to go to the hospital, all that's going on around us while I'm regulating myself and regulating her, co-regulating with her. Mom and dad swoop out the door with the five-year-old, go to the ER, checking with me first, of course, to make sure I'm okay with staying. (laughs) And I uh, suggest, then she jumps off my lap and becomes very animated. And I'm like, oh, adrenaline rush, come down. Okay, so why don't we do a puzzle? I'm thinking in more calm activity would be good. So she goes and she gets this little manipulative toy with tiny pieces that fit together. It's not a puzzle. It doesn't make a picture. You just break them apart and put them together and they're just all different colors. Hmm. We sat for 30 minutes at the picnic table on the back deck with the cool evening breeze blowing over us in almost continuous silence. I was taking the pieces apart and laying them out and sorting them by color. She was picking them up and putting them together in the pattern that suited her. And every now and then she'd say something about it or I'd say something about it. And at the end of that 30 minutes, she was absolutely fine and was not traumatized at all and wanted a snack and 
everything was cool with her. I don't think she's going to retain any neurological tremors from that. I don't wow. think it's going to hold in her system the way that it would have if I hadn't been there and they would have had to swoop up both kids, lock her into her car seat in the back seat, screaming and resisting the whole way and listen to her scream and him scream all the way to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a whole different scenario when there can be somebody who's the ground. Yep. And if you weren't there, if one parent decided to rush off with the son and one parent stay with the daughter, the parents staying with the daughter is going to be totally on edge and dysregulated until they find out what's wrong with the son. So even if you weren't there, even if no matter what choice they made, it was going to be difficult for either parent to help that little girl work her way through that undamaged or unscathed. And the little boy too, because the other impact would be he would have had been put in his car seat in the back seat, screaming and crying and bloody instead of sitting on mama's lap and, and being cradled on the way to the emergency room. Yep. This is, you know, mama and I talked about this. I went back for a do over on dinner (laughs) just last night. And we had an, so we can do do over dinners too. I like it. (laughs) We had an injury free evening. It was marvelous. But mom and I had a conversation about, you know, what would have happened if I hadn't been here and kind of that, how, why it takes a village. So I said, what if I wasn't here? Would you have had a neighbor? You could have in the moment said, come over here and stay with the little girl. And in fact, she did not at this moment. They used to have a neighbor. They moved away, you know, so Mm. that when we say it takes a village, that it really does. We should be thinking about that kind of village. Do you have a neighbor who can come in an emergency and let you do something in a way that is less traumatizing for your littles and for Mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are things to think about. Absolutely. But, you know, most of the time, all we need to do is just sort of be there for the kid and let the kid be who they are. Know that this is a competent, whole, unique individual. Mm-hmm. And just watch them and with amazement as they emerge as who they are. And don't try to put too many controls on it. Don't try to make them be you or make them be any certain way. And let's see who they are. By the time they're five, you'll have a very clear idea. By the time they're three, you'll have an extremely clear idea who they are. That's such a good but, point. When I went over last night, let me tell you the impact on the little three-year-old too. When I went over last night, she met me on the sidewalk. Now this is an almost three-year-old. And so right. She's, so she's two. Right. Exactly. Her speech articulation is phenomenal for her age. And she literally looks up at me from the sidewalk and says, I am so glad you came back again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so sweet. And so telling. Oh, so Yes, Exactly. Because when she saw you, she probably felt safe. She did. She just has that neural connection now. Now she knows your face equals safety. Yeah. And the interactions that we had last night were very different from any interactions we've ever had before during the time that I've been here. So it doesn't take perfection. That's the other thing, you know, it's like we do get so anxious. Oh my gosh, I'm ruining the kid. I'm not doing it right. Don't, you don't have to be that worried about it. I mean, we're, we're genetically and developmentally programmed to do this right. And we over uh, analyze it a lot, I think. Uh, and we over 
I don't want to use the word manipulate, but we arrange, we try to arrange things for kids, arrange it to make them more successful, arrange it to make them um, happier, arrange it to make them have less stress. And, and really hands off, no arranging is a much better approach. Yes. Protect kids. Yes. Keep them safe. Yes. You know, do all the things so that they won't be injured or become ill, but otherwise let them be who they are. They're people. So true. It reminds me of uh, just last night, my daughter is struggling in her math class. She's in 11th grade. And uh, I, I really transformed my parenting when my older son was probably eight or nine. And so he often jokes that he's our guinea pig and that parents work out all the stuff and make all the mistakes with the first one so that the next ones get a better shot, (laughs) better experience. But um, he and I are very close now. So we have done over all the, all the doing and all the development and, and it's good. But um, she's been struggling in math and she said to me, so I want to give this example as what it looks like in an older child, she texted or she sent me an email from school and she said, I failed my math test on Monday. My grade is even lower. So it had been like a low 80 or a high 70. And now it was going to, it was 76 or something. So it's like sinking instead of getting better, it's going down. And she's been struggling with this and, and not wanting it to be that way. And so I said, well, when you get home tonight, let's come up with a plan for how you can get a grip on your math grade and the, the material itself. So that was that. And then the day went on and I had clients when she got home. So I didn't see her until, you know, maybe seven, eight o'clock at night. And she was sitting at the kitchen table doing her math homework. And in the middle of her math homework, which the math always takes her a long time because she's struggling in the middle of it, she just popped up, you know, kind of snapped out of her math homework. And she said, I think I need to in her school. Like if you want to meet with your teacher, it used to be, you could just show up when they had office hours, but now there's this very cool scheduling thing where you can sign up to meet with your guidance counselor, the teacher, you can do clubs, you could do all this stuff and you just go in the scheduler and put your name in so that they make sure they have enough space. You know, if it's full, you can't go until the next day. But anyway, so she said, I think I'm, I think what I need to do is I need to go in there and I need to reserve time with her and her open time on Friday. And then I'm going to send her an email. And I said, that sounds great. What are you going to say? And she said, I'm, I think I'm going to say, I'm not really sure. I want to come in to get help from you, but I'm not really sure exactly which part of the math, like which unit I'm struggling with. So maybe you have some ideas for me. And I said, that sounds brilliant. Go for it. So that was, that was an ex- that's an example with an older kid where I didn't swoop in and say, okay, you're failing your math. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to get a tutor every day. They'll be here at four o'clock when you're home from school. You're going to do this, this, and this, and you're going to, we're going to, we're, we're going to email your teacher. No, none of that. I just tried to stay back, let her figure it out. And if she said, after, if she didn't say that in the middle of her math and at the end, she still didn't bring it up. I would have said, let's talk about your math and how we're going to, how you 
can get a grip on it. And then I heard that you said, let's talk and make a plan. And by the time you were ready to talk, she'd already thought she already had the plan. Right. So it gave her hours to just percolate it in her mind and she figured it out. And one of the things she's building is her own self-confidence and her own belief in herself and her own ability because she's got far more ability than she realizes she has. And so, so she, she expressed the three-year-old success strategy of faith in herself, belief in, in her ability to do things, even that she's never seen herself do. And she used the five-year-old success strategy of vision of creating a goal and a plan to get there. Yeah. So did it all with you just offering enough support to co-regulate her stress about it. That is what I see happening there. That's that's really, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. That was brilliant. Good job. Thank you. (laughs) Now I'm going to ask you another question because this is on my mind too. And this is also about her. She, when she was born with um, low muscle tone and sensory processing issues, Uh one of the things that she needed help with, and we got her into physical therapy at four months of age because it was obvious to me. I didn't know what to do about it, but the pediatrician sure did. And so off we went. So she was in physical therapy, strengthening her body. She would do, we would change her diaper and hold our fingers like that, our thumbs like that, and do 10 sit-ups with her with every diaper change. Like she was getting a personal trainer every day of her life as a, a newborn. <laughs> but then she also, we needed to add occupational therapy because part of her sensory issues, because the wiring wasn't going the way it would go in another child, she had trouble with motor planning and balance and things like that. So I remember one of the things we would do when she was very little, maybe five, six months old. I mean, we had to teach her how to roll over. We had to teach her how to sit up. We had to teach her how to get onto her hands and knees, pull up, take her first steps. We had to teach her all of these things because her motor planning didn't allow her to figure it out. So I remember the physical therapist explaining that to me and saying, you know, kids learn, like you're talking about with that little girl with the ball, trying to get it up her leg to get to it, to hold it. Uh, They learn through play and play is serious business for little people. And so when she, like we, we put her on her belly put a toy that she wanted and then put like a, a a small pillow in front of her. So she had to figure out how to get to that toy. Do I go over the pillow? Do I go around the pillow? And the first time we introduced this challenge to her, she saw the toy. She's you know trying to get to the toy and she can't figure it out. So it caused her distress because she could not figure out what her body needed to do to get to that toy. So then we had to teach her. We had to teach her how to go over the pillow, teach her how to go around it, teach her how to army crawl, roll, you know, whatever she could do to get to it. We had to introduce these concepts to her because she wasn't, she just didn't have the ability to come up with it. But 
so we did tons and tons of work with her when I, when she was little, but it makes me wonder if her, and you know, this is just a, like a selfish question on my part, but it makes me wonder if her lack of ability, her motor planning deficiency when she was so young and we were working with her when her brain was pure elasticity, nothing but elasticity. I wonder if her inability to learn through play and figure all that stuff out might've injured her, her self-confidence and her belief in her ability to do things, because I see that as a challenge for her now. And that's like, she didn't have a lot of adverse experiences as a child other than these kinds of things. Right. What do you think about that? I'm so glad you asked this. And, and, and because it isn't just about your daughter, it's, it actually applies to many kids, bigger conversation. Yes. So one of the things I heard you say right at the beginning was that because her sensory input systems didn't function the same way that other kids did, she was not, she was getting blurry information. Look at it that way. So the yeah, data, very good. right. From, from her senses, her eyes, ears, nose, skin, all the, you know, as well as her um, kinesthetic, her proprioceptive kinesthetic oh, movement in space where my body is in space, proprioceptive feedback from my, my actual skin surface and what I'm touching and my clothes on me and interoceptive, what I feel on the inside, my belly hurts on the inside, my guts hurt, my, um, my breathing is constrained, you know, the interior sensing systems, mm-hmm. all of that was bringing her blurry information or yes. damaged information. And so you were having to teach her ways to work around and get new information. Mm-hmm. get better information from her systems than she could get on her own. And so, yes, of course that would change the way her brain is wired, her initiative, her ability to initiate and have agency from the start felt frustrated. And she always had to have somebody help her learn how to do it. Yes. Or she could have initiative and agency on her own. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would imagine that would have long-term impact on the sense of, can I really do this? <laughs> Sounds like she has pretty good confidence given the story about the math homework though. So it's not like she's got too much damage in that arena, but absolutely I would expect that to be different. And so that's the bigger story for everybody is that, and that's why those adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs make such a huge difference Mm -hmm. is that they further damage all of those systems of input. Mm -hmm. So if the child is physically or sexually abused in infancy and toddlerhood in the preschool years, mm-hmm. think of all the damage that does to the ability of all of those systems to deliver clear information about the world. And not- all they tell you is you're safe, you're okay, you're doing right. great, you're on the right track, or there's a threat, you're scared, freeze, flight, <laughs> flee. The world flee, is a bad place. Flight, right, the world's a bad, you know, it's like all of those things are what you're receiving as blurry information or clear information from the world and you're responding to it. Mm -hmm. So that's something everybody needs to know about the way we work in the world. And so as she gets older, she'll, she'll gain more and more of an ability to work around all of that blurry information. And that's where something like vagus nerve healing or other, um, uh, 
like the neurological work sometimes at the level of the system, we know so much more about it than we did when she was very little. Mm -hmm. She might find as she gets older that there are other healing modalities that help her even more um, when she gets out of the kind of standard education system. And she's probably getting a lot of tools, I would guess, from special ed support and, and the school district too. Yes, I hope. She's, I mean, educationally, she's, she's flying high. I mean, she's, she's good. It's just this one particular class that's tripping her up a bit. And she's, she's kind of shocked because she's never had to struggle. She's never struggled in school. And she said that last night. It's so weird. I don't like asking for help. I never had to. This is, (laughs) this is weird. So (laughs) what a great opportunity for her to have at this point in her life, though, to learn how to ask for help. Right. As a, as an almost adult, she's learning how to advocate for herself in a way that she never, that life never required of her. So it's, it's beautiful. It is. Oh, that's how we look at, that's how we help her to see situations that it's, it's all a gift. It's all good. There's always some, there's always something to get out of it if you really want to. Yes. And that's the, that's the success strategy of the seven-year-old. That's acceptance. This is something that looks bad. And it's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I can fight with it, you know, whether it's a rainstorm on a day when I wish it was sunny, or it's a person who's treating me in a way that doesn't work for me mm-hmm. in a relationship. It's like, whatever it is that's happening isn't working for me, but I can't just let my life stop because this one thing isn't working for mm-hmm. me. You know, it's going to rain sometimes. I'm going to get wet. And whether that's an actual physical rainstorm from a cloud or a rainstorm from another person in my interpersonal relationships really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so what's the uh, capacity that I have here to grow, to learn, to heal myself, to move forward in my life instead of saying everything's horrible, I'm done. Right. I can't anymore. Mm-hmm. I worry about this new sort of slang expression of I can't even, I mean, I use it myself because it's kind of funny, <laughs> but this sense of things are just so hard that we just can't even anymore. Can't, mm-hmm. I just can't. Well, yeah, we can pretty much about everything. Mm-hmm. And that's the nature of being human. For the we just good have to remember, right? Yes. We, we just have to remember that we can and believe that we can. Yes. And that, again, takes us back to those first three. If I can trust that the world is there to meet my needs, if I can know that it's okay to need things from other people, and I have the trust that uh, people will be there for me, if I know who I am, that mm-hmm. independence of the toddler I say, when you're an infant, you learn what you need and how to, that it's okay to need things and get them. When you're a toddler, what you think, feel, and want. And that little package, need, think, feel, and want, that's a person's uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Nobody else needs, thinks, feels, and wants in the same combination as oh, you. So true. And so at toddlerhood, what we see is a child striving to say, This is what I need, think, feel, and want with really rudimentary interpersonal and verbal skills. Right. Beautiful. Baby is learning to walk and falls down all the time. We don't say they're a failure or they're uh, bad at walking. Mm -hmm. But when a toddler is rough around the edges and is falling down all the time in their expression of what they think, need, feel, and want, we call them terrible. We call them bullies. We say they're they're tantruming, they're out of control. Toddlers get labeled as bad in this culture in America, Mm. almost universally, for just 
trying to learn to walk interpersonally mm. is on their and they're going to fall down all the time. They're going to be terrible at it for a while. And our job is to help them get better at it, just like we help them get better at walking, provide a little support, hold on to the fingers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's ways to support the development of expressing our independence and our uh, uniqueness as a human without letting kids take over and run everything, mm-hmm. which is what people think is the alternative. It's not. That's so fascinating because, I mean, when, whenever you talk about kids and development and parenting and interpersonal relationships, you know, there's so many layers. <laughs> there's so many layers. It's so complex. But it makes me think about how in our culture, like you were saying, a child learning to walk is seen is seen and struggling, you know, falling down, getting up. Oh my gosh, look at their resilience. They've got fortitude. They're, they're pushing through. They won't give up. They're learning. They're learning. So yes. that is a, an awesome thing. Everybody is applauding that. Yes. And nobody's judging the parents negatively because their child is learning to walk and Thank falling. You. Thank you. Yes, that's but right. When the toddler is throwing themselves down in the middle of the store, yep. everybody's thinking about the parents certainly are wondering what are all these people thinking about me as a parent, because my two-year-old is splayed on the floor right now, screaming. And it's really no different than a little one-year-old learning to walk. That is exactly right. It's the perfect parallel. Every learning process of our lives is, has a learning, a steep learning curve at the beginning when we're really terrible at the new thing. If you're an adult and you're learning to play tennis, you stink at it. You're going to be terrible. You're going to miss the ball most of the time. It's going to fly right over or right under your racket. And when you do hit it, it's going to go some crazy direction you didn't even think about. Mm -hmm. It's going to miss the boundary lines and fly over the fence. Mm -hmm. But nobody tells you that you shouldn't keep trying to learn to play tennis. Right. Nobody tells you that you're not okay as a person because you're bad at it in the beginning. But this one little window, when we have the ability to let kids be comfortable and feel safe with expressing who they are, Mm -hmm. this is what I need from you interpersonally. This is how I think about the world. These are my thoughts about the things I see. This is how I'm emotionally, I'm like having a roiling bunch of physicality going on right now that is my emotion. Let me tell you about that. Mm Mm-hmm. All of that stuff is trying to come to the place where verbal skills and understanding other people and understanding logical things like cause and effect, all of that has to happen over a period of time before kids are really, really good at saying, this is who I am. They aren't really great at it until they're about five, six. So it's a pretty long developmental window, this expression of who I am in a sort of clean, healthy, non-defensive way where I don't expect to be judged. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and our most common U.S. parenting and education message is, no, that's not something you should need. That's too much. You're needy. Don't think that. That's a wrong thought. Don't feel that way. That's a wrong feeling. And don't want that. That's yucky. That stinks. That's dirty. Get that out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. So the consistent message to the toddler in a lot of places is don't be who you're telling me you are. That's not okay. And that's the crucial period 
where we can really help kids not become anxious about who they are mm. is if we could just say, huh, oh, well, that's interesting. Let's let go ahead. Tell me more. And don't yeah. freak out about any of it. Let them be who they are. Let them feel what they feel. They're not going to feel that way forever. They're not going to be that messy in their expression or they're, they're not diplomatic at first. They take things away from other people because they want them. Right. It's simple. They don't have the concept that other people want them to. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. They don't. Have you ever heard that the toddler property law? No. <laughs> it was very popular back in about the 80s. And it was a long list of, if I have it in my hand, it's mine. If I had it a minute ago, it's mine. If I had it earlier in the day and I was thinking about it a minute ago, it's mine. And it's like this long list of all the things that make the things that, and the last item on the list is, if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> I love that. It's so true. It, it's a comedic way of looking at it, but that's kind of, we see toddlers as this sort of grasping. Everything is, everything is grabby. Yeah. Mine um, kind of wild beings who are just too much for us. And you know, a wild being is a good way to think of them, mm-hmm. but they are starting wild on something that is going to become a tamer version of the wildness with our help. We shouldn't just say, oh, my God, look at this horrible kid. This is the way my kid is going to be. Is that what you thought when your child was crawling? Oh, my God, look at this horrible walker. Is that why my kid is going to be? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay. If, so If kids can come through that infant toddler period, then when they get to three, they start really noticing the rest of the world in a big yes. way. And that's when they get excited and get uh, develop that sense of faith, that magical, anything can happen, I can be anybody mm-hmm. feeling as a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. They sort of run at life on their tiptoes. Yes. And emotionally. Mm-hmm. And they're all about the, everything is wonderful and I can do everything. And so that those three things together, you know, that package of, I know who I am and I know what I need and I know what I want and I can tell you about it. I can be present to that and tell you all about it and know that I'm okay. Not feel ashamed about how I feel, not feel ashamed about things I need or want. And then, and oh my gosh, isn't life fun? Everything's possible. Life's Mm -hmm. magical. Let's go play. Mm -hmm. Imagine if every adult had that as a solid foundation in their lives. (sighs) And, and, and lived it today. Yes. Parenting would be a heck of a lot easier for one thing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and that's why I always say we have to do this work ourselves first. We have to put the oxygen masks on ourselves before we yes. put them on. Absolutely. So instead of worrying about whether you're doing it right with your kiddo, start looking at yourself. Do I trust people? Do I have this faith? Do I have this ability to have big dreams? Do I know how to, do I know who I am? Do I know what I want? Do I know how I feel? Lots of us don't even know how we feel. Mm-mm. And can I then talk about it? Can I share it with other people in a way that's healthy and doesn't manipulate them or doesn't require them to join me? Mm -hmm. Can I let them have their feelings and their thoughts work on ourselves? And then we won't have to worry about how we're doing with the kids. We'll Mm -hmm. be great. Cause we'll already understand it. Yes. So I hope that my listeners, all of my listeners who have kids who are Mm -hmm. under seven, newborns, babies, toddlers, preschoolers, all of it. I hope they will all tune in to this wonderful episode and learn from all of your amazing wisdom. But what about the ones whose kids are over seven? (laughs) What are we going to do to help them? (laughs) 
what, what can they do when they're hearing all this amazing stuff and they're going, oh my gosh, what do I do now? By most consistent messages, it's never too late for you Ooh. or your So I say the same thing. You know, do the work, put your oxygen mask on. You know, you can, I have a book called Just Be Your S-E-L-F, Your Guide to Improving Any Relationship. It's sort of the do-it-yourself version of my work. So it's a workbook. Um, you it. get the book and you do the development do-over exercises are right there in the book. Well, <clears throat> I will post the link to that um, in the show notes so that people can check that out because that sounds like I can think of quite a few people who should get that book. <laughs> and, then, and in those days when I wrote this, published in 2018, and I was calling the self-aware success strategies, I was calling them the seven childhood treasures. So in that book, what you will see is seven childhood treasures, but it's the same list of seven things, trust, independence, faith, negotiation, vision, compromise, acceptance. So now um, I'm bringing those into some coaching work. So I have sassy woman coaching available in small group, seven women cadres um, to work together over seven weeks on putting our own oxygen masks on. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's the do it with me, <laughs> do it yourself with the book, do it with me with the coaching. Um, and I also have a gift for your listeners. If you'd like me to tell them about that. I can't wait for you to tell them about that. So the reframing of the treasures as the self-aware success strategy is in a little 15 page PDF book at, and I would love to send that to anybody who would just send me an email at Carol C-A-R-O-L at lcarolscott.com and I will send you a copy of that PDF. Awesome. And I can put your email in the show notes as well so that they can just click there and, and connect with you. Yeah, anytime you listen, whether you're listening right when it's fresh out or if you listen a couple months from now, just send me that email and you'll get that little book at. Fabulous. Well, Carol, this has been absolutely amazing. You are a treasure trove not of seven things, but of infinite numbers of things. Thank you, Erin. That's lovely to hear. I have really enjoyed our conversation and I think it's going to be, bring some real value to my listeners. And I'm so happy that we had the time to connect today. You too. Thank you so much. So make sure you send Carol an email and you check out her book because it is going to help you get a handle on some of this more complicated stuff that you just can't put your finger on. I think that's what I, how I would describe it. Some yes. of this stuff is easy. This stuff we're talking about today is a little more complex. So make sure you check out her book and send her an email to get her free gift. So that wraps up today's episode. Wherever you are in this world, I hope that you make it a very self-aware day. That wraps up this episode of Powerful Parenting for Today's Kids. If you know anyone who could benefit from this episode or this podcast in general, please share it with them. Also, I always love hearing feedback from my listeners. I welcome you to send me an email to Aaron at Aaron-Taylor.com if you have any comments or questions that come up for you in an episode. Our children are our future. Parenting them is the most sacred task we will ever be asked to do. It truly does take a village to raise a child. Let's help each other to raise our children to be who it is they are meant to be. 
If at any point you feel like you need a little extra help and support, reach out to me. I am here to help you.